So we're in a new series. We're just starting it. It's called Pause, as Mike said. And we're going to do five weeks on what it means to have a pause in our lives. And um, if we're going to put it into a theological vernacular, if we're going to use a theological term, we're going to use the term Sabbath. And I don't know what your relationship with the Sabbath was. I don't know what was your experience of this pause growing up. But there's a few things that stood out in my mind. And, and I came from a great home. Um, and I remember one time in particular, we, I grew up in La Sierra. My father was a theology professor at La Sierra University, as you probably know. And um, we were in the grocery line at this grocery store called Alpha Beta. Anybody remember those? Alpha Betas? Yeah, come on. Um, I don't even know where they went. They just disappeared. Like, I don't know how grocery stores do that. But we, uh, we were waiting in line, and this was an east-facing grocery store. I, I figured that out. It's an east-facing grocery store. And we just kept watching the shadow of the grocery store move out into the uh, parking lot as the sun was going down. And I remember my dad's look of anxiety of like, we're here on Friday night and we need to get the Sabbath almost here. We need to make it happen. I remember seeing his anxiety. And even at a young age, I, I remember thinking, you know, I don't know what you're so worried about. Anybody else who's here is here. You know, it's like two Adventists showing up in a bar. They like look at each other like, mm, we're not going to mention this. I mean, that doesn't happen. Probably. No, but I, I remember that, right? <clears throat> I remember that. I remember looking in the bulletin, in the church bulletin, and seeing the exact time the Sabbath is over. Thank God. Right? You could get the exact 642. And you knew if you were a good Adventist, if you waited until 643 to turn on the TV. Guarding the edges. We even had words like that, right? Guarding the edges of the Sabbath, making sure that we didn't break it. Uh, I remember we would have people come over to our house and some, you know, everybody expressed this concept of Sabbath and the way that they kept Sabbath in their lives differently. And so some people, you know, would come over and they wouldn't cook. And so we'd, you know, want most things to be done. Or you go over to their house and everything would be cold because they weren't going to turn on an oven during Sabbath. There's a lot of different ways people express this, right? Not right nor wrong, just a lot of different ways that we were doing this. So I don't know what it was that you experienced growing up. And by the way, that's all the negative stuff. There's tons of positive stuff too, right? Being with family, being out in nature, so many good things. But I don't know, I don't know what it was, but ever, whatever it was, it's time to reevaluate when you think of this pause. And I'm going to be using the term pause and Sabbath kind of interchangeably. It's time to replace the history that you have with a new meaning, a new understanding, and hopefully a new joy, right? It's like you're getting something brand new and you're going to unbox it. You know there's a whole industry on YouTube just watching other people unbox things? Brand new things? That's the weirdest thing. I've caught my children watching videos of people unboxing stuff that they already own. Like my son was watching the unboxing of a PlayStation 5, and he had one. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, well, it's really interesting to watch. Because... Because when you get that new gift, when you get that new thing, it's pretty exciting. And so that's my hope for you, that during these five weeks, we will go on an unboxing opportunity with this concept of the pause, with the concept of the Sabbath. So are you ready? Are you ready to rediscover the Sabbath? And you, you don't sound, you don't sound really at all. I understand you're not always sure when you're supposed to answer. I get that. Because so, some of them are rhetorical. Some of them I don't need you to answer. It gets very confusing if you do. But, um, but that one you could. 
But we want to unpack it not as a rule or a restriction, not as a burden or like a backpack full of rocks, but as joy, as hope, as the need we have for it, and as what it was intended to be in Scripture, in history, and in the future. So we begin at the beginning. That makes enough sense, right? We're going to start where the pause begins. But we're going to look for intent. We're not just going to look for process. We're not just going to look for specifics. We're going to look for the philosophical understanding of why God gave us this Sabbath. And, and I don't know what you've experienced before in, in the sermon series or sermons that you've heard about the Sabbath, but preaching is often about the right of Sabbath, what's right to do, what the right day is, and that sort of thing. You're not going to hear that from me for a couple reasons. Number one, I don't know if you know this, but you're here on Saturday. So you've worked some of that out, right? So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. I don't think that's really needed. Um, but we're going to take a look at righteousness, our relationship, and certainly the concept of rest as well. So we're going to take a look at that. We'll begin where it begins, Genesis 2, verse 1. It starts like this. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. Now that's an important word. This was the rest of completion. The rest of a job well done. Have you ever done something so well that you know you deserve that rest? Like, have you ever taken a test that you just, you just killed? Like, you murdered that test. It was so good the way you, so much so that you look at the teacher like, are you even trying anymore? Like, do you even care anymore about us? Now, I didn't get a lot of that growing up. I didn't have a lot of that in my academic experience. But every once in a while, you'd take a test and you'd, you know how it was, you'd stand up a little bit differently. You know, because most of the time it's like a walk of shame, right? You're like, oh, I can't believe I took this test. And you put it there and you're actually whispering the words to the teacher like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't, I was late night last night. I wouldn't really, I didn't really understand what you were talking about. I don't speak English very well. You know, there's a lot of these different things that you can do. Um, but when, you, when you've done it, when you know that you've done it, you've done a good job, you've completed it, that's when you walk up and you like throw it at the teacher, like try harder next time. But be careful with that because they know your name. Right? Be careful with that. Um, I think about Matthew 25, 21, right? Well done, my good and faithful servant. The job, of, the job is complete. But, but there's a, a, something we need to understand about this. We need to understand that creation moved towards rest. That's fascinating. Not rest of the exhausted, but rest of the completed. I mean, is the rest found in the pause? Is the rest found in Scripture about the Sabbath simply about recuperation? And from a biblical standpoint, no, it's not. It's the rest of contentment, of completion. Because you got to ask this question, did God need rest? Was he tired at the end of creation? Was he winded? Did he go to his angels like, man, guys, I don't know. This has been a marathon. I'm exhausted. I need a little break. Of course not. That's not the conversation that he had. He was content. And so he stopped work because it was done. Do you find contentment in the pause? Or do you find Sabbath just to be something that's recuperation? Right? And this is why we were so often taught wrong. Because we couldn't find contentment because we were so worried about keeping it. And yeah, I did use air quotes for keeping it. And we'll get to that. We were wondering if we were keeping it correctly. And that got in the way of us being content in it. Because the Sabbath became the same sort of work that the rest of the week was. It's because we didn't understand why it was really given. 
Genesis 2-2, on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. What we've done, is, of course, is we've latched on to the seventh day. I get it. Listen, I get it. You want to keep the right day. That's great. But some of us are keeping the right day in the wrong way, and so you're not keeping it at all. For some, it's become slavery. It's become bondage. It's become something completely different, something that God never wanted it to be, never asked for it to be. We did that. That's why we're rediscovering Sabbath. And by the way, if you think Sabbath is just for recuperation, understand you're not understanding the Sabbath biblically. You're understanding it from Greek philosophy because Aristotle is the one who talks about us recuperating one day a week. He agreed that with a pause, he knew the pause was important, but he talks about the recuperation that we need in order to take on the next week. That's not biblical. That's not what it is. We don't rest on the Sabbath simply to get ready for the next week. That's too small an understanding. It's kind of sick. It's diminishing. And it puts the Sabbath in subservience to the weak. It puts the Sabbath in subservience to production and the product that you're expected to create all week. If rest is only in service of production, we have lost the meaning of the pause. And you know what that is, right? Being in service of production, that's just slavery. Living to work with little reward. I mean, you might get paid really well for your job, but that's still fleeting. I know so many people who make so much money and still can't find contentment. So there's a book that I've, I've studied a lot for this series, a couple books. One in particular that I think is, and I've loved this book for a long time. It's by Rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. It's called The Sabbath. It's really easy to see. And he, it's poetry, it's philosophy, it's theology. It's beautiful. It talks about the Sabbath. But he talks about this particular point in this way. He says, the Sabbath is not for the sake of the weekday. The weekdays are for the sake of the Sabbath. It is not an interlude, but the climax of living. And Rabbi Heschel understood. We don't keep the Sabbath for the sake of the week, but as the apex of the week, the very top. The Sabbath is the summit. It's not the climb. It is the mountain, not the valley. It is the view from the top, not the view of the top. And you can't talk about mountains without talking about Everest, right? When, when I read John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, like Everest immediately had this like fascination to me because, you know, so many people have died and so many people have become, you know, disabled. I mean, it's been beautiful and horrifying all at the same time. And so you got to ask yourself, like, why summit Everest, right? I mean, there's a mystery to it. There's a magic to it. There's a tragedy to it. But you do it for one reason. The view. Because this is what you want to see. It's beautiful. It's forever. You can see forever. As I was looking through pictures, choosing the one to pick, there was one that just showed the shadow from the top of Everest, the shadow of Everest on other huge mountains. I mean, come on. You can see forever. People risk their lives every day for a glimpse of eternity that they get from that summit. Here's the thing. This is what we have in the Sabbath, in the pause. 
a glimpse of forever. The connection, not just to the second coming, but a connection to the second living. We have an opportunity every single week to experience eternity, and we are to live and love differently because of the pause. To live eternally, to love unbounded by time and space, that is what the Sabbath is for. I mean, think about it. God finishes work, and, and you know, from the beginning of creation, right, he, he, light and darkness, and all of a sudden you got time, right? And it was morning, and it was evening, and it was good, but it was bound. And so at the end of that, God looks at the week and says, hey, this is great, this is good. And then he goes, but you know what you're missing? You're missing forever. You're missing eternity in these days and nights in this temporal creation that I've just made. But you know what we need to give them a little bit of a taste of? We need to give them a taste of eternity. And so he set the Sabbath at the end of this temporal time so that we could taste eternity. What is so great about this pause? The Sabbath is a deep mind from which we can build a palace in time, as the rabbi says. It holds the precious metals that we need to construct this palace and live in it, even if it's just once a week. And we know that this was a different day because in Genesis 2-3 it says this, and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work in creation. And it's fascinating that we constantly talk about resting from all the work of salvation, but we have a hard time talking about the first part of that sentence, and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. Because this is the elevation of the day. This is the day, this is raising the day from product to content. Right? From production to completion. From desire to contentment. And it's a day where he embedded value in the relationships that we could live in eternally in that day. And listen, to declare something holy is to set it apart, to imbue value, and to enjoy it. You know, the ancient Hebrews, they didn't just believe in the Sabbath for a day. They believed in it as a lifestyle. They believed in it as an economy. They, I mean, they had Sabbath festivals. We don't have Sabbath festivals. They had Sabbath festivals. And you know what happened at those festivals? At certain times, land would revert back to its owners. People who were, who were deeply in debt were freed from that debt. Things were made right. They weren't just thinking about the Sabbath as a day. They were thinking about Sabbath as how you live your life, how you make things right in the world, and how you get towards shalom, at peace with God, with others, and with yourselves. This is the way that they were looking at the Sabbath. Not a day, but what does that text said? Then on the seventh day, and we're like, I think we got it. As long as we place eternity in time on the right day, then we're good. And we made it just a little bit smaller. And then what we did is we began to talk about it as what we can't do. Right? Why all the abstentions? We abstain from this, we abstain from that. Why do we often talk about the Sabbath in form of what we cannot do? And by the way, as Seventh-day Adventists, we do that with our own faith tradition a lot. 
right? Somebody asks, what is Adventism all about? And you're like, well, we keep the Sabbath. We keep it for us. <laughs> right? We keep the Sabbath, one, and here's all the things we don't do. And then we're kind of lying because we're like, oh, and we're vegetarians. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. And we don't do this. And so we like friends, wait, like live in reality. What if when someone said, tell me a little bit, what is Seventh-day Adventism all about? You say, listen, we recognize eternity in the week. We recognize that God gave us a time not to be right, to be holy. Not to just lord it over other people. Not to, not to lean into the restrictions and the abstentions of it. But we have a moment to love and live eternally every single week. We never give that up. Because this makes us a different kind of people. Because we see eternity every week. Can you imagine summiting Everest every single week? That's amazing. Why don't we talk about our faith tradition like that? Why don't we talk about our Sabbath like that? But listen, I don't want to hammer anybody because I understand this. Listen, sometimes when you don't understand the enormity of something, we just say what it's not. Right? Because we can't, it's a hard time talking about it. We have a hard time talking about it. You know, and sometimes the shadow proves the sunshine, right? So we talk about the shadow rather than the sunshine. I think that's why we often approach Sabbath that way. It's via negativa, right? We're arguing from, from the negative. When we, when we don't know what to say about something, we say what it's not, what we can't do, what it's not for. So we lean into that second part where it said, well, God didn't work, that's the shadow, so let's forget about the sun and focus on the shadow. I mean, because we can't capture eternity in a day, God gave it to us so it is a recurring instance in our week. Every week, we get to practice eternity as a discipline. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Think about that. Yes. When, do we get to, when do we get to do that? And man, when we stand in, in front of something so holy, we are often silenced. Right? Perhaps that's why we talk about the abstentions, because we don't know how to say how much this means and how big this is. We don't know how to explain it. Have you ever seen somebody standing in a museum in front of a work of art and they're weeping? You can't walk up to them at this point and go, so what moves you about this piece of art? Right? That diminishes that experience a little bit, doesn't it? Because the guy's not going to go, well, I just love his brush motions over in that third quadrant. That's not what you're going to say. You're just going to, I don't know. But it's opening me up inside. It's breaking my heart and healing it all at the same time. So what do we do? Sometimes we just got to be silent. It's reverence, right? It's recognizing the holy. It's recognizing eternity. And when in our lives do we have a moment of eternity? And I know that sounds like those two things can't go together, but every Sabbath we get an opportunity for a moment of eternity. And we're transformed into creatures of forever. And when do we get that, right? When do we get to experience that in our lives? Maybe, maybe when we see the person that we're falling in love with. Maybe when we see our child for the first time. Maybe in things like, you know, the experience of baptism or communion. But by and large, we don't, 
become creatures of forever. On Sabbath, we are brought into the great pause, into the palace in time, into the palace of time. But you know, rather than let it be the mystery that it is, rather than let it be eternal, infinite, we tried to capture it. That's the whole concept of keeping the Sabbath. Let's see if we can put boundaries around it. Let's see if we can make it something that we can handle, something that we can manage. You were never meant to manage the Sabbath. You were never meant to manage that. Because God said, here, here's a taste of forever. And we're like, can we bottle that up? (laughs) Sure, just like you can the universe. Try and stick it in there, see how well that works for you. How can you bind eternity? You see, eternity is the essence of God, the expression of his love and the outlandish grace that he has for us. But you know what? Even eternity is not big enough to claim or control the love that God has for us. And so what we do is we just have to lean into eternity and recognize that eternity leads us to righteousness. How does this happen? How does the pause, how does the Sabbath, this connection that we have with eternity lead us to righteousness? And now let me just explain righteousness for just a a hot minute here because it's very easy for us to confuse righteousness with right behavior. And that's not what I'm talking about. That diminishes the idea of the holiness of God. When I say righteousness, I mean the righteous heart that God puts inside of you the desire for grace, the desire for compassion, the desire for mercy, the desire for justice, these ways that we live in the world differently because of who God is. And God imbues that into us. And when we touch eternity every single week, we should remember and recognize that. And it leads us to righteousness in at least three ways. The first is this, the pause just grows us towards God because we cease other activity We do take a break. We do take a moment. Things do change. Therefore, we are drawn into the thing that inhabits every space. The God that lives in between the words and characters in Scripture. The infinite space and time that love inhabits. That's how it draws us in. It's like a tractor beam drawing us towards God. And we have a moment to recognize that and recognize that 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 pull is not going anywhere. The pause reminds us of one another. I mean, look around you. You're sitting with a group of people who you don't need anything from. These people in this room, they do not add to your bottom line. The relationships that we have through the rest of the week, those are relationships that can easily be used And we need each other for certain things. And oftentimes it's connected to our bottom line. Early in my ministry, I had a person come up to me and he said, listen, I want to get you involved in this business. It's really important to me because you're a minister and you're not going to make very much money. Thanks. That's fun to know at the beginning of your career. Um, You're not going to make very much money. So if you do this, you'll make a lot of money and you can do ministry for free. That was always the pitch. You can do ministry for free. And he kept continuing to tell me about it. He said, all you need to do is you need to buy this inventory and then you sell it to your friends and you get them to sell it to other people. And then you'll be wealthy. As long as they do the work for you, you know how it goes. 
And I was like, and listen, people can make money however they want to make. That's, you know, certainly up to you. I'm not making a judgment call on that. But for me, as a minister of the gospel, I went, hey, I can't do that. Let me tell you why. Because on Sabbath, when I stand in front of a group of people, they cannot be responsible for my bottom line. Because if they are, if you are responsible to that for me, our relationship just changed. And on Sabbath, I don't need to need you, but I want to be with you. But if I need you like I do the rest of the week, then it's different. And I said, so thank you. No. The pause reminds us that we don't need the same kinds of relationships that we have during the rest of the week because these relationships point us towards God. And I think most importantly, the pause, the Sabbath, it gives us time to worship the Savior. And this is important because we are afforded the opportunity to have a focus and a love that we simply can't do during the rest of our time-bound lives. This is why the Sabbath does not serve the weekday, but the weekday serves the Sabbath to bring us to a point where we recognize that we must be worshiping God and we must take time to do that because worship moves into the eternal as well. And worship comes from an understanding of the grace that drives that eternity. When you wonder why you worship, it's made clear to us. And I got to tell you, it's made clear to us in the fifth chapter of Revelation. And you've probably read it and you may have passed by it too quickly or maybe you've lingered in it. But when I think about why we worship, when I think not just, you know, not just the, the, the story of Jesus and his temporal life here. But when I think of the story, the grand story of why we worship God, Revelation chapter 5 says it beautifully. And so I'm going to read it to you with not a lot of commentary. And after that, we're going to ask you to step into a moment of worship, the kind of worship that you can only do when you've had time, when you've had eternity to worship God. So it says this. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. This is God. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. So there's so much to this story. It, it went from the inside and it bled over into the outside. And it was sealed with seven seals. Have you ever gotten, have you ever gotten an invitation with a wax seal on it? Have you ever been able to open up without destroying the envelope? There's seven seals on this one. This is an important document. And I saw a strong angel. Now, I don't know what a weak angel looks like, but this one was strong, right? A strong, this is the kind of angel you want to see. When that angel shows up, you're like, man, that guy's strong. Who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Now, you got to know, this is, this is drama, right? This is the theater of heaven because the, the universe knows what's about to happen, but John the Revelator doesn't. So he's watching this unfold. And it says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And John recognized this. And he began to weep bitterly, it says, 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders, one of the 24 elders said to him, hey, stop it. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he's already won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. And then John sighed. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Now it's gonna get weird now, but just stay with me, right? It's revelation. He had seven horns and seven eyes which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. Now, the reason why this is important is first of all, seven is an important number, but it's also the universal, it's the eternal number, right? And also Jesus died for everyone on the earth. So we need to understand that if we need a metaphor that has seven horns and seven eyes to recognize that this gospel goes to all the world, this is why we worship God. And he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. The right hand, that's the important side, right? That's the VIP side. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders, those that represented all of the universe, what they do? They fell down. They didn't, they didn't slowly get down. You remember being in church and they'd be saying, let's kneel. And you think, oh man, we gotta kneel. They didn't worry about that. They fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. They're your prayers, they're my prayers. And they sang, they glimpsed eternity. They glimpsed salvation and they glimpsed eternity. And their first response was to fall down and sing a song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language and from every people and from every nation. Friends, can I get an amen here? Come on. This is why we worship and in Sabbath, we have an eternity to do it. So even though this song is only five minutes long, this is your eternal moment, a moment where you become a forever creature as we sing the praise and worship of God. Stand and worship with us today.